This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. So at the time of this taping, we tape uh, we tape on Thursdays at 4 p.m., so a little bit earlier than what you're listening to right now. But if you log on to Austin Energy website, uh, you would find that the total energy demand of the city of Austin right now is being supplied by 59.1% renewable energy, a combination of wind and solar power. That shift away from non-renewable energy is just one of the ways that the city is tackling the climate crisis. Here today to talk to us about that is Chronicle staff writer Michael King. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, glad to be here. Um, and it's an interesting subject. Absolutely. One that you wrote about in this week's issue. Uh, let's start with the good news, Michael. Austin is already moving in the right direction. Right. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the city has been able, <clears throat> partly by... Uh, Desire and partly by push and shove uh, of the public to get closer and closer to uh, to uh, renewable energy goals. Uh, as you say, uh, the big things have been done by Austin Energy, and not simply by decision making, but renewables have gotten more and more competitive over the last decade. And in the short term, um, uh, we've made good progress um, on on reducing. Uh, uh, carbon emissions, although the job is a big one. And one of the things I write about in this in this uh, story, uh, which was good news, is uh, the mayor had just come back uh, with the chief sustainability officer from the C40 meeting in Copenhagen, which is the international network of cities. I don't know what the exact number is now. I think there's more than 70 of them. So they're not C40 anymore. But um, um, uh, the international network of cities that are trying to do something about climate change. And 30 of those cities uh, can now say that they have plateaued and started to reduce emissions. Austin is one of those 30. And what was surprising to me when I looked at uh, the announcement is uh, that it, it didn't just include, say, <clears throat> cities like Austin or Portland or Vancouver, which you would expect. Uh, it also included New York City and Los Angeles and a couple other major metropolitan areas like that. It doesn't mean we've won the battle by any means, and uh, the cities can't do it alone. But uh, it is good news, and uh, Lucia Athens uh, and uh, the mayor both said, you know, it's important to celebrate our victories, otherwise we just get discouraged. So this is all part of the, the Austin Community Climate Plan, right? The, a series of benchmarks that the city is trying to achieve in order to uh, reach net zero emissions by, is it 2050? Right. Net zero is the ultimate goal, not only of the city, but uh, the Actually, international goal. Sorry to interrupt. Will you define what that means exactly? Uh, it's a little bit difficult for somebody who's not a scientist, <laughs> okay. which I am not, but um, uh, you're trying to get to a point where either you've reduced emissions as far as you possibly can, zero would be the theoretical goal, although that's extremely unlikely, um, or that you balance them out with, with uh, negative emissions in the sense of, of captured emissions like planting more trees 
or literal uh, capture and storage, which uh, is not really uh, financially feasible yet. But those are the long-term goals. There were basically two things that uh, that, that triggered the story. Uh, one was the student climate strike on September 20th down at the Capitol, primarily organized by uh, Austin high school students, although you know, a lot of people of all ages were there. Um, and they made some specific demands, five specific demands at the at the rally. Uh, and even though it was taking place at the state, and clearly some of that impetus was uh, directed at the state, um, uh, three of their demands were really directed at uh, the city of Austin. And I can get back to those in a minute. Uh, but I, what I mentioned that you brought up is that in 2015, um, Austin designed its initial climate policy plan and and right about now, uh, they've started the uh, upgrade, updating that plan um, uh, with work with uh, a working group and stakeholders and so on, uh, planning to complete that work in a, just about a year this time next year. So I thought, well, I can take a look at what the students are asking for. I can take a look at what the city has gotten to and where we're going. So that's what I was trying to do. So as as you said, the the city is making progress. Um, in contrast to the state of Texas, is is moving in the wrong direction. But I'm wondering, how is Austin's continued growth going to complicate this plan? Well, what's interesting is that we've reduced our emissions even as the population has grown. So the question is, can we keep that up mm-hmm. um, uh, without getting any help from the state? Indeed getting obstructed by the state and the federal government. Um, and what the planners, mostly the people, uh, Lucia Athens and Zach Balmer in the, uh, in the sustainability office, emphasized to me is that the easiest stuff is already being done, which is directly under the city's control, basically um, Austin Energy's emissions. Um, uh, in addition to the fact that they've gone more and more to renewables, they've moved towards um, uh, shutting down um, uh, carbon emissions em- emitters, like um, they're going to shut uh, their portion of the Fayette plant, they're going to shut the De- the Decker uh, um, Lake plant, which burns natural gas, Fayette bits be- burns coal. Each one of those steps reduces the overall emissions. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. the The Fayette Power Project, as you said, uh, they'll close down the the Austin, the city of Austin's portion, but the state will continue to be using it. Right, that. and exactly how that'll work is not exactly clear yet. Uh, the city basically owns what amounts to one third, or emits one of one of the one third of the energy there. Uh, and, and local Colorado, local Lower Colorado River Authority operates the rest of the plant, and and because that's a state operation, they have shown own inclination to to change. So whatever pressure has been put on um, the city needs, in that case, to be uh, put on the state to say, look, I mean, um, it's a crisis, it's an international crisis, and we need to do our part. But the the state leadership largely Republican, has resisted that tooth and nail. And in fact, I point out in the story that, um, that in fact, uh, the state's carbon f- footprint has gotten worse in recent years because of the fracking uh, uh, explosion. Most of that frack gas, uh, which, is, which is called a bridge fuel uh, to lower emission fuels, most of that is for export. We're not using it as much in Texas anymore because Texas is getting greener. Um, 
the grid is greener now, uh, the whole state, more and more renewables. Uh, but there's no impetus on the part of the state leadership to uh, to uh, do anything about it. And, you know, we're having a huge pipeline fight from the natural gas fields in West mm -hmm. Texas uh, for that purpose. So uh, just to go over the strikers' demands, they, they, they uh, want Austin to divest of its fossil fuel investments by 2030. We're not on schedule to hit 2030, but we're working towards that. Then there's the Fayette Power Project. We finally closed uh, Austin Energy is going to uh, take its part offline. The LCRA has not shown any inclination to do so. Um, they asked that the state declare a climate emergency plan with real teeth. And since the legislature has refused not even to uh, reject, but not even to consider climate um, change legislation, it doesn't even get out of committee. Um, that's a long shot unless yeah. we change the legislature. Uh, they want to end all nat all coal and natural gas use by 2025 and provide just transitions for workers. There's plenty of jobs now in renewable energy, and that transition should be possible. <clears throat> it's an aggressive schedule. Uh, we haven't met it yet. And finally, and this one is probably the utopian um, uh, wish that Texas move to 100% renewables by 2050. But that's the, the long-term goal, and 2050 is getting closer and closer. Absolutely. I, there's a photo accompanying your story in the paper, and it's it's from the climate strike, and it's of a, a teenager holding up a sign that says, if you don't act like adults, we will, uh, which I thought was really striking, and it's true. It, it feels like there is some movement, finally, uh, nationally and internationally uh, about taking this seriously and it seems like it's only happening because kids are you know it's certainly i mean obviously greta thunberg has been the poster child for this but um and and that had a lot to do with the energy of the climate strike all over the world uh, just her dedication um and and um uh, these these young people realize that i mean somebody my age i'm almost 70 now uh, is not going to uh, feel the worst effects of this, but my granddaughter is. And uh, uh, it's encouraging to know that these big cities have finally plateaued. Uh, Mayor Garcetti of L.A. Uh, just took over the chairmanship of that C40 effort. And so even while the feds actively attempt to roll back um, any climate regulation, including in California, um, uh, the cities are saying, okay, fine, you guys are going to just stand there and, and uh, pretend pretend ignorance. Um, but the rest of us have to do something, and most people live in cities. So um, our next challenge here, beyond Austin Energy, which is the big single source, is transportation and land use uh, reform, uh, which are reinforcing, mutually reinforcing. We need more density. We need more mass transit. And we need more people to get out of their cars, all of those things uh, uh, together. I talked to Smitty Smith, who a uh, longtime uh, environmental uh, activist, who now in his dotage uh, <laughs> chairs uh, the, the Texas Electric Vehicle Association uh, or Electric Transportation Association. And he told me that he believes, and he's a very optimistic fellow, he told me that he believes that uh, all electric vehicles will, vehicles will be competitive by 2022 or 2023. If that's true and people like you and me think, well, geez, then it makes more sense to mm -hmm. have an electric vehicle, more and more people will be saying, geez, well, I'm not going to be part of the problem anymore. 
Well, if you want to know about what is going on with how Austin is dealing with climate change, uh, you should pick up this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle and read Michael King's reporting on the subject. Michael, thank you for coming in. Okay, thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break now for some station announcements. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We're in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, and live streaming through koop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. And I am delighted to introduce my next guest, Doug Freeman. Doug is a longtime contributor to the Chronicle, as well as the co-editor of the Austin Chronicle Music Anthology, which was published by UT Press in 2011. Doug, thanks for joining me. Thrilled to be here and uh, thrilled to chat a little bit about songwriting with soldiers. Absolutely. Uh, So that is this week you profiled Austin singer-songwriter Darden Smith and the nonprofit he co-founded, Songwriting with Soldiers. But before we dig into that, I thought we would listen to a Darden Smith song because this song, Angel Flight, it it sort of feeds into the whole story, right? It's it's really kind of where it starts uh, for him. He was commissioned to write this song by the Texas National Guard. uh, And from his work in doing that, uh, he kind of discovered the value of co-writing with soldiers and that there was there was really something here that songs could do uh, that songs could achieve that he was really impressed by and really moved by um, so we'll listen to a little bit of this song and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about the program where it is now Some days I don't want to come down I fly that plane Call the angel flight Come on brother, you're with me tonight Between heaven Okay, that was Angel Flight by Darden Smith. And as Doug Freeman is explaining to us, that was the sort of the origin story of this nonprofit songwriting with soldiers. Yeah, I had the um, so so they started the program in about 2012. Um, it was Darden and another Austinite, actually a native Austinite who now lives in upstate New York, uh, Mary Judd. Um, she runs the kind of program end of it. Uh, she studies a lot of positive psychology um, and has been long been a longtime educator on that side. So she helped design a lot of the program. And Darden, of course, recruited all the songwriters to sit down with these soldiers. Um, so I had an opportunity to go up to a retreat that they did in uh, Smithville, which is about an hour outside of Nashville, uh, with eight veterans um, and four songwriters. And uh, this is something I wanted to uh, kind of experience for a while, Uh, you know, having known Darden for for many years and known about the program. um, The program has gotten a lot of really great attention. So there's been a lot written about the program. And there's actually, I should note, uh, a PBS special that just aired last week. uh, That's a concert with a lot of the songwriters. And you can find that online, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. on KLRU. Yeah, it's on the Um, website, too, for Songwriting with Soldiers. Great. You can find find a link to that on the Austin Chronicle. Um, but, uh, 
I kind of wanted to look at the program from the songwriter's perspective, what hasn't been given a lot of attention. Obviously, the veterans and uh, what they go through and how the uh, songwriting uh, is impactful for them gets a lot of attention, as it should. Uh, but I was I was really curious, on top of that, how the songwriters handled that um, and wanted to, to experience that because they're doing, they're doing a lot of very intense work. Um, and it's very, very different than how, uh, especially in Austin, how we typically think of songwriting and the work of songs. Um, so I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the most fascinating aspect for me. So you were, you were in the room during this process. And just so, we're, so we understand sort of how this works, it is pairing veterans and also some active duty service members, as I understand it, pairing them with professional singer-songwriters. Veterans tell their story. And songwriters turn it into a song? Songwriters write the story. Okay. Um, it, it sounds so simple. <laughs> um, and, uh, of, of course, it's uh, it's very intense, and it's not that simple at all. Sure. Um, but basically, for the retreat that I was at, and they have uh, several different programs that they do um, in several different formats. But uh, at this retreat, it was one-on-one, songwriters sitting down with a soldier. And, you know, it's it's just conversation. It's just, uh, you know, where are you from? You know, mm-hmm. how'd you get into the service? Tell me about your You know, it's just casual conversation. Um, and the impressive thing about this is... I don't think a lot of us uh, that aren't veterans, uh, that haven't served realized how much these conversations don't happen um for for veterans uh, you know they'll say you know i don't i don't talk about this stuff and not not just you know combat experience but you know the experience overall it doesn't the communication between civilians and veterans is really really poor and so i think a lot of what the program is trying to do and accomplishes is this recognition of like like we need to hear these stories as civilians, and veterans also need to hear the civilians' stories. Um, you know, there just needs to be communication there, and we shouldn't shy away with it. Uh, one of the things I respect about the program, um, there's no politics in it. Um, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff is, is left at the door. And Mary, Mary Gaucher, uh, one of the songwriters uh, who has become a really big spokesman for the, for the program, you know, she's, she's very eloquent about the program and uh, how it works and why it works so well. Uh, but she's also very hilarious, and, you know, she's the first to admit that, you know, here she is, you know, a pacifist, a leftist, lesbian, and, you know, never thought that she'd be in this position. Um, you know, thought that uh, she put out an album last year of, of songs that she co-wrote with Soldiers that actually was nominated for a Grammy um, and called Rifles and Rosary Beads. And, uh, you know, she's, she, you know, she'll be the first to tell you she never imagined her career going in this direction. But she'll also tell you this is the most impactful work that she does. Um, and she's so proud of it. And you understand why when you watch it happen. Well, since you brought it up, let's listen to another another song. Um, this is Mary Gaucher's song. Uh, yeah, this is uh, The War After the War. Um, and I will say this song was actually written with uh, Soldiers' Wives. Um, oh, so it's written with a group of soldiers' wives, uh, you know, kind of documenting their experience. It's an extraordinary song. It's my favorite from the album by far. Um, let's give it a listen. Who's gonna care for the ones who care for the ones who went to war? 
Okay, that was Mary Gaucher's song, The War After the War, which she wrote with uh, veterans' wives. Uh, now, Doug, I'm really interested in, you know, you've sort of described the experience of what happens at these retreats and how the songs are made. What What is the life of a song after? Well, so uh, several there are several different things that they do. Um, one, they do register all the veterans that are co-writing these songs with ASCAP, uh, which is the official um, uh, songwriter uh, uh, kind of licensing organization. Um, so they get credit um, and any uh, royalties <laughs> that might right. come from it. Um, you know, they get recognized. So in the case of uh, Mary Gaucher's album that got nominated for a Grammy, all those co-writers are, are part of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, so they get that recognition. Which is an extreme success story, I yeah. imagine. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. of course. You know, most of these songs, so uh, most of these songs are actually up on their website at Songwriting with Soldiers. Um, so the song, the songs are out there with the permission of uh, the veterans. I think one of the important aspects uh, of the program is it continues on for the veterans after the retreats. Um, so... I haven't been privy to that aspect of it. I mean, it's, you know, very kind of uh, personal and, and it's the group and they stay in touch. Um, but th- I would say that this is the other side that uh, Mary Judd really focuses on, which is, you know, the program, a lot of, a lot of programs in support of veterans, uh, you know, whether it's helping them transition or helping them deal with uh, PTSD or depressive issues um, kind of approach it from the aspect of let's talk about what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And the entire point of this program, uh, as I quote uh, Kevin Reeder, he's a psychologist that uh, has kind of been involved with the program, that he loves this aspect of the program, is it takes the exact opposite approach. You know, it's like, yeah, you're you're probably dealing with stuff, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all are. Um, but uh, let's talk about what's right with you. <laughs> you know, let's talk about what your strengths are and how we can focus on those, um, you know, rather than hunkering down and, and trying to deal with this pro- problem um, that you may be dealing with. And oftentimes that is even more effective in getting somebody uh, – you know, to acknowledge trauma, um, to uh, face trauma, uh, you know, because, you know, a lot of a lot of these veterans are very good at, at uh, burying that and not facing it. So I think a lot of the program, a lot of the remarkable success of the program is just taking those experiences, taking those stories out of somebody and putting it in front of them. Um, in this very tangible way that's out in front of the world that we can look at it all together and be like, oh, there it is, mm-hmm. you know, and now we can talk about it. Now we can deal with it. It's not this thing in your head. Um, and songwriters get that. <laughs> so as, as uh, you know, Mary Gaucher very eloquently says, you know, this is, this is about dealing with trauma. And, you know, she's like, I know that. <laughs> mm. She's like, I understand that. That's so, the commonality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, and so... What I was interested in, especially after watching this um, uh, retreat and experiencing it, it's very emotional. It's incredibly powerful. Um, But, uh, you know, kind of how the songwriters deal with hearing all these stories. Because they sit down, they write a song in three hours, which is an intense process in and of itself. But they're also absorbing these stories that, and, you know, have to do it in a very bold and, uh, you know, calm way, um, non-reactive, accepting way. 
a non-judgmental way. Um, and so I was very curious just in how they dealt with mm-hmm. that because that's a heavy emotional toll that they're taking on. And Darden was was really interesting in in saying that he requires the songwriters to have some kind of spiritual release, whatever that may be for them. But he's like, you don't come into this program um, as a songwriter and without having knowing how you're going to exit it, um, whether it's talk to a therapist whether it's, um, you know, go to church, um, whatever, whatever your spiritual rejuvenation is, you're going to need a couple days. And I understand that completely. Even after just sitting there through the weekend and witnessing this retreat, I was exhausted. I was mm-hmm. done for a day. Um, it's just so emotionally taxing. And then the other side of this, I'd say, when, when, when they write these songs and then the songwriters perform them that evening uh, for the veterans and their families that are gathered there, uh, the experience of that is unlike any other show I've ever seen. Um, go to a lot of shows, seen a lot of great songwriters perform a lot of great songs. These songs are different. Um, and the charge in that room uh, is it's electrifying, it's uh, cathartic. Uh, I mean, every it, there's not a dry eye in the room. Um, and uh, that personal connection of those songs is just extraordinary. And, you know, I understand why, why they, why the songwriters say, you know, their regular shows don't even compare to, mm. to these performances. And this, they thrive off of that um, in a very visceral way. Well, Doug, thank you for, for sharing the experience with us. Uh, and you can read more about Doug's time at the Songwriting with Soldiers retreat uh, in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle on Stands Now. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, a quick reminder, there is an election on Tuesday. Don't know what's on the ballot or where to go to vote? You can find that information in the paper or online at austinchronicle.com forward slash elections. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael King and Doug Freeman. Thanks also go to our engineer, Evan Hearn, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music.